Our first speaker is Rika Aoki reading her story, To the New World. This really is a historic event. Thanks for being part of history um, with all of us. And uh, I'm incredibly, incredibly honored to be here. I realized, you know, that to be, meet such and to work with so many wonderful writers, I got on a plane and just got in from LA last night and I'm just here partaking in just uh, the brilliance of these other writers with which I share. This is called To the New World. Damn it! How I thought Asian hair was supposed to be easy! Millie Wong was on the verge of tears. Tangled and frizzy, shouldn't that be straight? She yanked at her brush. Maybe it was some hidden female genetic thing. Her sister had perfect hair and her mother had perfect hair too. You're so stupid. You're not even passed to your own hair. You're just a fucking tranny freak. Sharp pain happened as several strands of her hair snapped and brought her to reality. Okay, okay, calm down. Come on, Millie, deep breaths. You slept with wet hair, that's all. Deep breaths, okay. No yelling today. Breathe. Think of grandma. She steadied herself, took smaller strands of hair, and brushed gently from the ends. When she was done, she repeated the process with her straightening iron. Feathers of steam floated off the iron, leaving her hair shimmering like ribbons. Thank God. She peeked at the clock and shook her head. Okay, getting ready was bad enough on any Sunday morning, but this was her grandma's birthday. For Millie, her grandmother's birthday was not just remembering her passing. It was her most important family gathering, even if it was just between her and her grandma's picture on the kitchen table. Back when she was Victor, see, Millie had been her favorite grandson. Of course, Millie had no idea how her grandmother would have reacted to the transition. She probably would have been horrified. But one could always imagine otherwise. And besides, since her death two years ago, she was the only person in her family that Millie could come out to without fear of being disowned. And today, Millie was going to the farmer's market to find something for her grandmother, something special. She peeked outside and frowned. See, it was another stupid LA winter day. Not enough drizzle to call it rain, but enough to spoil all the work she just put in her hair. But there it was. So she sighed and grabbed her purse. She trudged past the greasy Thai restaurant to the crosswalk, where a tow truck stopped to let her pass. The driver nodded as she hurried down the street. And Millie Wong smiled for the first time all day. Because you see, that truck driver would have never, ever stopped for Victor. It's not easy almost getting run over by cars and trucks pretending not to see you or not even trying to disguise they don't care. And that's how it was for Victor Wong, a nondescript Asian boy, afterthought, non-thought. Wasn't so much just being hated, it was being invisible. It was going to the mall and having the store salesperson help the next customer. It was waiting too long to get a table at a restaurant. Heck, but for Millie, cars would stop, doors would open, people would smile, even flirt sometimes. Millie knew about objectification. I mean, you don't grow up being Asian and not hear all sorts of things about why Susie Wong and memoirs of a geisha are either racist or trash. But after a life of being ignored, was it wrong to like people being nice to you? By the time Millie wandered down Sunset to Ivar and turned into the farmer's market, the skies had cleared 
and a clean offshore wind mixed with the familiar smells of car exhaust and blended with fruits and vegetables and the sweaty patchouli. Almost instinctively, Millie studied the other women, how they were walking and speaking. Her parents lost their accents by mimicking TV and radio, and one of M Millie's main reasons for listening to K KPFK was to practice Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. <laughs> but it was nothing, there was nothing better than watching people live, catching snippets of conversation that conveyed gender, ethnicity, even social standing. I'd like a mocha latte with that soy milk. What's a good recipe for Hungarian peppers? Listening to conversations swirl around her, she purchased two heirloom tomatoes, which were strangely available even this out of season. But it wasn't a great day at the market. The produce was pretty sketch, and she tried not to judge some sorry excuse for fresh basil. I mean, like, we're not in San Gabriel. We're in Hollywood, and, and it's organic. Okay, it's organic. <laughs> and then she saw it. A puffy loaf of sweet bread made with milk and sugar and butter. It was soft, you know, kind of like a steam bun. Her grandmother had loved that sort of bread, especially towards the end when she couldn't chew very well. Putting the loaf into her bag and preparing to pay, Millie remembered the hospital room. She remembered pulling off small bits of steam bun and feeding them to her grandmother with fragrant, with fragrant lukewarm tea. Suddenly, a loud voice brought her back to Hollywood. Yo, Millie, what's up? Her name was Sierra, and to Millie, she looked it. She seemed tall and solid as a mountain, with snow-capped eyes, rarely blinked. See, she was one of those dykes that didn't just want to take back the night. She wanted to grab and throttle it. When Millie first met Sierra, she was a loud voice from above complaining about the excessive sweetness of Fuji apples. Millie was awestruck. How could she be so loud and yet so completely female? Sierra had laughed when Millie first asked her this. She said Asian women were like those cute little beep-beep horns on a Prius. Sure, they're cute, but the big truck crowding your lane isn't going to move. you got to sound like you mean it. And whatever it was, Sierra meant it. She had never been comfortable, Millie had, never been comfortable with Sierra's take on Asians. She knew some pretty obnoxious Asian women. But she had been happy to make a new friend. Sierra warmed to Millie quickly after afternoons of homemade scones and political protests. And she infused Millie with opinions on nuclear power, on meat, on patriarchy, and all that stuff. Then during one conversation about, why the fuck do we need penises, Millie confessed she was trans. Sierra stopped, and Millie wondered if she was going to get up and walk away. Then Sierra busted out laughing. I knew there was something about you. I mean, really, I couldn't tell. Really, I mean, you're beautiful, but something was different. I mean, shit. Millie started laughing, too. And then came all the usual trans 101 questions, which Millie tries or tried her best to answer. Sierra listened, then pronounced Millie was okay because she didn't feel that male energy coming off her. This made Millie feel happy and safe, especially since Sierra was pretty buff, not somebody she wanted to see mad. But from then on, it wasn't the same. Oh, Sierra was still as friendly as ever, but Millie could sense the difference. Sierra started treating Millie much less like possible dating material and much more like a younger brother-sister. She was happy to tell Millie what it meant to be a socially and politically responsible woman, but also made it clear that with trannies, there was always male privilege to root out.
You can't go out alone at night or walk into any old sport, sports bar without fear anymore, you know. Coming from Asian parents who taught her to avoid large groups of drunken white men, Millie had never actually been to a sports bar, but she nodded and listened, careful not to interrupt her friend. Today, Sierra focused on the bread in Millie's bag. So, you're still supporting the dairy industry, huh? <laughs> Millie trembled. She had been caught with non-vegan bread. <laughs> of course it wasn't vegan. It was, it was her grandmother's favorite type of American bread. But if it wasn't, Millie probably wouldn't have gotten it because she had been thinking about becoming a vegan. She, I mean, she was really sad. She had been born with male privilege. And maybe by being vegan, she could in some way be closer to the woman she wanted to be caring woman, a strong woman, a vegan woman. <laughs> it's my grandma's birthday, and it was her favorite, she finally ventured. But Sierra continued, patriarchy is patriarchy. Do you know that dairy cows end up in McDonald's hamburgers? They're genetically engineered to produce milk, but once their production falls, they're just killed. I mean, it's like, it's, it's worse than what happens to beef cattle in some ways. I mean, it's like the Tibetan women. They have nothing but their stories and weaving, but the men in the Chinese government want to take that away from them too. Millie knew better than to interrupt, though she wondered what Tibetan women had to do with dairy cattle and the loaf of bread. But she knew that Sierra was active on so many fronts that sometimes she made connections which might seem just impenetrable to others. Plus, any argument on her part would have simply triggered accusations of male privilege and, in this case, of possible connections with the Chinese government. <laughs> Millie nodded to Sierra and put the sweet loaf back. As they walked away, Sierra gushed about this great spot just outside Palm Springs with an authentic Japanese Zen garden. Millie mentioned she might like to go, but Sierra said, no, no, it's a women-only space. You know, women, women? But I thought you might appreciate the Zen part being Asian and all, very feng shui. <laughs> Again, Millie nodded. She tried not to dwell on women-only spaces or, someone, or why someone would mention a Japanese Zen garden in the same space as feng shui. <laughs> she remembered that she had made the mistake of talking about Asian issues to Sierra before. Sierra told her, men are men. Chinese men and Japanese men both abused women, like those women in World War II, or, or was that Korea? Whatever, it's all the same oppression. Millie had thought about her grandma escaping Vietnam in a sodden, rotting boat, and she wondered if it really was the same. And today was her birthday. Hey, you okay? Sierra's words shook her out of her thoughts, you know. That woman only stuff didn't bug you, did it? Uh-uh. Oh, you can tell me. I know all about tranny issues. I mean, I'm still friends with you, right? She tried to smile, but it wouldn't come this time. Sierra noticed and put her arm around her. Listen, doll, I've been there. I know what it's like. I know about trans women. Hell, one of my girlfriends went and transitioned on me once. Millie looked up. Oh, yeah, it was rough. One day she was she, then the next day, I don't know. I mean, shit, I was confused, I'll tell you that. Of course, I made sure everyone knew that James had been Rebecca and that she, I mean he, I mean I, was still a dyke. I didn't want think, people thinking, you know, I went straight. I mean, no, no way, I'm never going to be straight. Sierra's voice seemed to tremble before she caught herself. I mean, James was so mad, but, you know, what could I do? I mean, hey, it's okay if she wants to be a guy or something, but don't push that shit on me. 
Maybe you just weren't meant for each other, Millie offered. Yeah, no shit. James is great, though. Sierra blinked and coughed, tried to turn it into a chuckle. <sighs> Trans women, what's up with that? Millie didn't know what to say. She didn't even think of correcting her with the trans man. Instead, before she could stop herself, she blurted, well, I think you're great. Then, then wondering why she said that, she fidgeted again and said, I have to get home now. I gotta go back to my grandma. Sierra didn't notice. Cool beans, I'd like to meet her one day. Sounds like a great woman. Gotta run, call me later, okay, ciao. Sierra winked, turned, then stopped. Suddenly she spun around and hugged Millie like she was made of clouds. Then she gave an awkward little half smile, half wave. She was awful. Millie stood there waiting for the city to stop spinning. She considered going back to get the bread, but she wasn't sure about male privilege and what to do if Sierra came back. So she took her heirloom tomatoes, along with some rather nice parsnips, and walked home. As she walked home, Millie again noticed the politeness of the drivers. She didn't need Sierra to tell her about fetishizing Asian women, but all Victor had ever gotten were sneers and indifference. Never seemed like much of a privilege. Was it wrong to feel good about being nodded to or having a door opened? What about having a car stop? Didn't they also stop for her grandmother? The same mother, grandmother, who would have been killed had she stayed in Vietnam? In the kitchen, Millie took off her shoes. She studied her picture of grandma. She retrieved the vegetables from her shopping bag and noticed that they were a little smaller and looked a little tougher than they had at the market. Tomatoes, parsnips, Pars parsnips. Gazing at them, she started to cry. You stupid, it's grandma's birthday and you didn't even bring home the sweet bread. She had bought tomatoes and parsnips and grandma didn't even know what parsnips were. Grandma. See, only three years ago, they were strolling through San Gabriel, looking for cheap groceries and steamed pork buns. Grandma would tell them stories about Vietnam, about coming to this wonderful country after the blood and the pirates, about being so crowded in a boat she could only sit because there was not enough space to lie down. Millie looked at the parsnips. She tried to imagine what Grandma would say, not just about transition, but this whole vegan business and somehow, it all, somehow how it could have all related to womanhood. Heck, what would she say about the farmer's market when at the Ranch 99 store the vegetables are half price and twice as fresh? And then Millie stopped. In a day, she opened her freezer and dug around. The two pork buns she found there weren't from Providence. They were from being Asian and having a freezer full of ethnic food. She paused, worried about backsliding to meat, about oppression and male children and Sierra, but with Grandma's picture looking right at her, she put the buns in the microwave. Now, of course, they weren't from her grandma. That would have been weird. But they were from her last visit to her parents. Why is your hair so long, they asked. Who's going to marry you like that? She had been waiting for the right time to tell them, knowing it would never come. Still, she was waiting. The microwave beeped, and Millie hesitated before opening it. She put a bun in front of grandma's picture, then took the other one out and bit. The scalding pork burned her tongue. But instead of bringing tears, the pain brought back memories. There was a sound of spices and aromas and tastes. The rush of family and faces and sounds. And she remembered mooncakes and pork buns and steaming ki ki screaming kids and beating her cousins at poker late into the night. She remembered violin from Suzuki and math from Kumon. 
smuggling bags of dried cuttlefish into the movie theater and Costco beef jerky into Disneyland. She remembered all of this. If I come out to the family, I'll lose everything. But it's more than that. I don't want my family to be laughed at. For all my mother's friends to say, look, there's the one with the freak for the son. Yet I can never go back to living a lie. Suddenly, Millie realized something in a way she never had before. See, once in the hospital, Millie had told Grandma that she had been very brave to leave home for America. To her surprise, Grandma stopped, started laughing. It was the same laugh Millie remembered when she was little and first saw her first steamed crab. She had screamed that a big red spider had crawled into the coffee, crawled into the cooking pot, and Grandma just laughed. She laughed again. Brave? No, not brave. You do because you have to. Oh, you give nice things up, but maybe you find new things too. I left so much family behind, Grandma said. They call me crazy, but they couldn't leave and I couldn't stay. Of course I miss home, but look at my life here. We didn't have Ranch 99 Supermarket in Vietnam, you know. As Millie remembered Grandma's laugh, she started to cry again, but not from sorrow. She felt a new connection with her grandmother and with the rest of her family as she saw her own life and identity for the first time as an immigrant. It didn't matter whether the distance was measured in miles or communities. It was still a long and violent journey. It was still full of people who would call you brave, people who would call you crazy, and people who would never call you again. Brave, not brave. You do because you have to. Millie looked at the parsnips seeming sad and out of place on the countertop. She thought about Sierra, about her other friends too, gay, queer, trans, goths, poets, friends who sometimes just didn't understand but who really meant well. Oh, you give things up, but sometimes maybe you find new things too. She held her bun, flipped her hair from her eyes, and nodded to Grandma. To the new world! She chuckled as she imagined Sierra's reaction to her and her pork buns. Then she took another bite and stopped thinking altogether. And when she was done, she smiled and sighed and decided she might call Sierra in a while, maybe get some coffee. Yeah, she'd like that. I mean, she seemed like she needed to talk. Besides, maybe Millie could finally tell her the difference between trans women and trans men. Maybe one day she might even ask her out shopping at Ranch 99, who's to say? And with the practicality that would have made her grandma smile, Millie covered the other bun and put it on the kitchen in the kitchen counter, not on the freezer. The pork bun had been kept well all this time, but once thawed and warm and steaming, it was best a thing to be experienced as soon as possible, like life itself, even as doubts and accusations and misunderstandings paid when faced with something real. Our next speaker is Red Durkin, reading her story, A Roman Incident. So, uh, I'm going to be reading uh, from my short story entitled, A Roman Incident. Um, and the beginning of that is here. Okay. An average human stomach can hold 10 pounds of food before it begins to tear. Two standard sacks of potatoes. And unimaginable, unimaginable to most, but there are those who dare to dream bigger. That's the, that's the prologue. Right? I don't know. I don't know how to, I don't know. I don't know how, I barely know how to read. It's okay. Um, 
To Charlie's immediate left stood a man who'd once eaten 21 pounds of grits in 10 minutes. All along the table in front of her, clad in the same free t-shirt she wore, adventurous amateurs stood shoulder to shoulder with vetted professionals who made their living rushing down enough food to kill civilians. Charlie prayed that in 10 short minutes she'd have earned a place in the fellowship of the latter. Icy terror filled her empty stomach. She could afford to lose some of her nerve, but none of her appetite. She closed her eyes and counted down from 10. And then she lost her place. At zero, the world completely exploded. Lights flashed, buzzers blared, and a crowd of thousands surging like a boar tide crashed into the security gate. Their cacophonous excitement splashed onto the stage, along with waves of their beer. Charlie was face down in her fourth mouthful of chicken when Pavlovian reflex gave way to human awareness and she realized what was happening. The Hooters World Wing Eating Championship had begun. Her destiny was at the bottom of the pile of poultry parts in front of her. She couldn't afford to be reckless. Every wing had to be clean in order to count, so she quickly rendered each to polished bone before moving on to the next. Behind her, behind her a gorgeous girl in emphatically tight orange shirt, shorts held a scorecard above her head. The woman bounced and smiled and cheered, faking her enthusiasm the way Charlie imagined her mother had taught her. In part of her heart, Charlie would always bear a hateful jealousy of women like this. She begrudged them their big, friendly breasts, their happily bulging hips, all the legible parts of their bodies that spoke woman in every language. Charlie's inscrutable frame would never carry that confident kind of currency, and she scorned the pretty girls for their oblivious luck. When she was nine, she'd posted a note on the fridge that said, Charlie is a girl and she needs new clothes. End of discussion. <laughs> Some years earlier, to get out of an intervention, Charlie's father had declared that the words end of discussion meant exactly that in the Eaglehorn household. It was family law. The phrase had been employed when she was 12 and demanded to go on hormones, and most recently at 17, when she declared her intention to become a professional speed eater. One minute down, one bowl of wings eaten. Charlie's heart kicked like a mule. Anxiety throbbed in her temple. Her jaw stiffened too quickly. She knew that if she didn't calm down and steady her pace, she'd be lucky to finish it all. But she was operating on a level baser than prudence. It was the reptile part of her brain that was grabbing and chewing and swallowing. She couldn't hear the sloppy roar of the crowd or the grunting gluttony of the, of the competition. Like the few other women on stage, she was pelted with the countless ugly words for girl that fly so easily from the mouths of angry, drunken men. She blocked it out. She'd had practice. Tears and snot gushed down her face. She was soaked in a marinade of sweat and buffalo sauce. Grab, chew, swallow. Each spicy wing tasted more like styrofoam and her cheeks bulged with unchewed meat. Every bedraggled second took a lifetime to pass. 
it was beginning to feel like home. She'd been raised by a pair of New England hippies who'd moved to Alabama because they liked the leaves in autumn and equated dirt roads with rustic honesty. The Eaglehorns settled in, settled in a truck stop town outside of Montgomery called Hope Hull, which was an appropriate name for a place so utterly gutted of anything worth looking forward to. The Charlie is a Girl campaign had been one of the most successful political movements in its entire history. As a homeschooled hippie whelp growing up on the fringe of an outskirt town, she was practically invisible to anyone who, who didn't share their meals with her. Between her mother's homestyle lopsided haircuts and her father's surprisingly successful approach to homeopathic endocrinology, those lucky enough to lay eyes on her were neither certain of nor curious about what they were looking at. Her parents claimed her as their daughter and, so long as you didn't have the audacity to dye your hair pink or the nerve to be dark-skinned, Hope Hole's residents were a proudly credulous bunch. Charlie suddenly realized she couldn't remember the last time she'd taken oxygen into her lungs. She wondered how long her animal mind had been screaming. All the pain and confusion she'd foisted on it was immediately hers to deal with again. Four more minutes had passed, four and a half more bowls, 55 wings in all. The top half of her body was covered in gore. Her jaw glowed white hot with pain, her esophagus burning with the sensation of being strangled from the inside out. She tried to swallow, but the blockage in her throat only shuffled in place. She snatched a cup of water from the table and gulped it down. The lump lurched mercifully. As it finally moved to take its rightful place in her stomach, she gasped a great mouthful of air, and the agony all over her body began to register on an all-too-conscious level. Her fingers hurt. She took another deep breath and closed her eyes. She forced herself to master the pain. She refused to go back to hustling arrogant rednecks at the off-ramp burger joints that compose Hope Hole's economy. At one time, those moments had been proud and meaningful victories. Now, they felt more like the glory day nails in her inevitably mediocre coffin. She was willing to eat her way out of that shit splat town, even if it killed her. She picked up another wing just in time to catch a blur of green glass in her periphery. The bottle cracked her just above the eye and everything went white in an instant. Charlie had been hit before, of course. By her mid-teens, she traded her beanpole adolescent androgyny for a sexlessly amorphous obesity. To the idle and idiot youth of Hope Hole, Charlie was a chimera of cardinal social sins. She was fat, opinionated, and ineffably weird-looking. She had the disturbing habit of reading for pleasure and her free-spirited Yankee kin might, well might as well have been Martians. The girls spit in her hair and laughed at her back. The boys called her a faggot because she confused them. She pun they punched her, she punched back, and slowly they all learned how to fight together. Her sole companion was a pig-nosed girl named Lulu who brazenly forced the friendship to garner disapproval from her pig-faced family. In fluttering flashes, the world began to focus. 
She'd staggered back from the table, was, but was still in the competition. Precious second, seconds had been lost to semi-consciousness, and she warded off wary medics to keep from losing more. The red in her eye might well have been buffalo sauce. Her throbbing head reminded her of home. She wanted to sleep. She needed to eat. She split the difference and looked around. Four minutes to go, and only eight of the original 20 competitors still stood on, stood on the line. For the first time, she could see that just past the grits eater and a bloated man wearing novelty sunglasses stood Sonia Thomas, the Black Widow. She was a spelt Korean-born woman who had managed a Burger King before becoming the second highest ranked gurgitator on earth. She held a dozen world records and, according to the scoreboard, a chicken wing that would put her 26 points out of reach. Charlie's stomach suddenly felt like a much smaller place. Somewhere outside of her body, she could see herself chewing again. She had never planned on beating Sonia Thomas. She had only prayed she wouldn't show up. Some people want to kill their idols, but Charlie didn't want a fight. She just wanted to get out of Alabama. A mechanical waltz settled over her body. Grab, chew, swallow. She, she struggled to distract herself from the replete pain and doubt welling up in her gut. She thought back to home and the perpetual motion of her life as a podunk pariah. In the dregs of her diffidence, she knew that she'd fed the beast, had let the hurt go deeper than skin and grown fatter, weirder, even meaner as a result. She'd crave the hard touch of a town that would never claim her as their own, never love her, never brag about her. Her hope had been shining through an ever-clenching pinhole, but in that lens, she'd seen the widow competing on television. Charlie recognized her kindred in strife, another misfit among rubes. She saw in Sonia Thomas a whisper of freedom, a liberty to dance on the edge of womanhood and thrive. Charlie's training had started the spring she turned 17. Her parents met her intentions of becoming a major league eater with a skepticism bordering hostility. 17 years of semi-responsible parenting had severely moderated the Eaglehorn idea of acceptable life goals. Really, they worried that their chronically unpopular daughter's plan to etch a living, shoving food down her throat was a proposition in suicide. She'd had to declare the discussion ended more than once. In fact, she'd never been further from death. Her regimen was modeled on what she could glean from her idle, sporadic television appearances and the internet. It was surprisingly in step with the recommendations of modern medicine. Eight hours of sleep at night, daily jogs, and a strict 1,700 calorie a day diet filled with fruit and vegetables. Of course, eating all that food at once isn't in many fitness manuals, to say nothing of her bi-weekly all-you-can-eat workouts. But the overall improvement in Charlie's health was undeniable. By the fall, she'd lost 78 pounds and gained the beauty and confidence of a girl who truly believes she has control over food. Her public enthusiasm of eating competi competitions did her few favors with her peers, but her reclaimed featherweight kilter and the off-brown hormones her father bought her online had given her a peculiar prettiness that at least kept the boys from throwing rocks at her. Her friendship remained a social pitfall Lulu alone was willing to risk. 
With 30 seconds left, something was very wrong and getting worse. The 83 wings she'd somehow swallowed were now in open revolt. Terror tied a knot in her stomach, making her nausea feel all the more urgent. She'd eaten beyond her means. Charlie was going to throw up. Her breath came in shallow gulps. She wobbled drunkenly as her strength began to break and she closed her eyes. Clammy certainty enveloped her. Vomiting was intractable and inevitable, but desperately needed to be stalled. If a drop of her sick touched the table before the clock ran out, she'd be disqualified. A great wave of adrenaline washed up the last bit of resolve she'd so jealously buried. It was immediately followed by the half-digested ambition at the back of her throat. Charlie's hands shot to her mouth. A gleeful explosion of pleasure roared out of the voyeuristic crowd. Her shoulders heaved as though she'd been shoved by an invisible hand, and she teetered slightly forward. The drool in her mouth tasted like batteries. The mess in her guts came flooding out over her lips and into her waiting palms. She shuddered violently as she buckled and began to fall. The buzzer screamed out over the chaos. The championship was over. Charlie's world strobed into blackness and she collapsed unconscious into a pile of puke and victory. It's a good line. Um, in her hallucinations, Charlie watched the Big Bang spew forth and begin to eat itself. She perceived a cycle of consumption, the tidal glut of energy that crushes stars and digests the cosmos. At the center of each galaxy sat an endlessly hungry mouth, a black hole that bolted down creation and waited for the final buzzer of doomsday. She, serenely, she recognized all things as an elaborate eating contest. The thought made her happy. She woke up to the bright white glow of tarp in the sunshine. Her head lay on a, on a starched, sterile pillow, and a clear tube of saline dripped into a vein in the crook of her elbow. The ebullient bustle of post-competition commotion outside told her she'd been unconscious for only a few minutes, though she felt like she'd witnessed eternity. Sitting up drew the relieved attention of a kind-faced young medic on the other side of the tent. Her heart fluttered, her head throbbed, and he urged her to lie back down. She'd almost died. It was time to rest. In a photo finish, Charlie's vomit had stayed in her hands and off of the table until just after the final buzzer. The rules were clear. She'd officially finished successfully. Charlie was awarded third place, just five wings shy of the grits guy. On the plastic stool next to her cot, paperclip to a $500 check and a handful of Hooters coupons, was a business card with the International Federation of Competitors, Competitive Eaters logo on it. She grinned deliriously, belched, and fell asleep. Thank you. Our next speaker is Imogen Finney, reading I Met a Girl Named Bat Who Met Jeffrey Palmer. Uh, my story is called, I Met a Girl Named Bat Who Met Jeffrey Palmer. We could have the Jeffrey Palmer conversation, but it would be a waste of time. Here's how it would go. I'd want to talk about what he wrote, what he took from Alan Watts and what he rejected, how he was almost on the same page as his contemporary Eckhart Tolle, 
but where the fishers were and why, why they used such different language. I'd want to talk about his correspondence with Ken Wilbur. If you were still with me, I might show you the tattoo on my bicep from a letter he wrote to Wilbur when Wilbur was already ignoring him. Quantification is both an over and under simplification of something so simple and complex as the self. If you were keeping up, I might explain that as much as I find Palmer's work to be true and effective, I don't know if you really understood what Ken Wilbur was doing. You wouldn't be following me. I could tell you about, excuse me, I could tell you about what Palmer thought about Daniel Quinn, Noah Levine, Sun Tzu, Yogananda, Rhonda Byrne. I'd want to tell you about how the beauty of Palmer's writing is how self-evident it is, how little interpretability there is, that that is the point. But your eyes would already have glazed over. You wouldn't want to hear about his influences, who he influenced, or why. Completely disinterested in content or context, you'd be like, man, webcam meditations, though. It just seems like such a silly waste of time. I sure could never waste so much time on that. And I'd be like, I know, you and everybody else. That's not interesting. That's what everybody who only knows him from that stupid Vice article from two years ago says. So when I want to talk about Palmer, I do it on the internet. It's retro, but I post on two message boards, a discussion board about his work and a board for trans women under 30. Last December, almost a year ago now, when I was fucking that boy Charles, when my hair was red and I used to wear that awful green eyeshadow, there was a little convergence where a conversation about Palmer came up on the message board for trans women. And like most times you hear his name, it came up as a joke. In a thread about philosophy, somebody was like, Jeffrey Palmer, lulz. I didn't want to out myself as someone who actually appreciates his writing, someone who actually does the work everybody else thinks is so funny. So I just neutrally mentioned that I'd read some of him. And this girl, Bat, was like, oh, I met that weirdo once. Obviously, you can't just be like, OMFG, you met Jeffrey Palmer, swoon. You'd get kicked off the internet or worse. I think I posted something like, oh, cool, still neutral, like neither endorsing him nor disowning him, but I threw up a little. Wow, that's kind of a theme. <laughs> I set the tone. <laughs> I checked out her profile, and she was in New York, too. I threw up some more, but I didn't really do anything, because while I did want to hear more, I was nervous that I would have sounded at best kind of uncool, and at worst, like a wingnut cultist if I'd asked directly, and I couldn't bring myself to ask about him in a mocking way. I didn't do anything about it for a couple days. I remember almost writing private messages to her a couple times, but feeling embarrassed at my phrasing, or at seeming all eager, or at caring at all. So I went to work. I chopped wood, carried water. When I had shifts at the coffee shop at night, I did my webcam meditations in the morning, and when I worked in the morning, I did them at night. I was feeling really uncentered, though, and I couldn't get it out of my head that there was a girl in this town, a girl I could meet, who had met Palmer. Then one night I let Charles sleep over because he'd said he'd make me coffee in the morning, which was a change of pace. I'm the one who spends all day every day making coffee, and it had made me laugh. I mean, I like Charles okay, but we were definitely not in love. For one thing, he didn't really have a sense of humor, but more importantly, he kind of dismissed my affection for the Audis. He thought the Animal Collective poster over my bed, my primary instance of decor, was just a picture of some ugly blobs, and he wouldn't even listen to the playlist that I made for him. But I was fucking him because he was hot and didn't have weird shit around my body, not because we were emotionally compatible. He was an unimposing guy, only a little taller than me, but he was so lean. He had these small, muscular shoulders, and when he fucked me, he would lose himself so completely that I'd lose track of my body, too. He's the only person I've ever had sex like that with. I mean, when we weren't fucking, he would talk about computer things and his new headphones, the album he had apparently been working on for a long time, bands from now, all this stuff I didn't care about. I tried to be interested, but the interest wasn't there. We would have made a terrible couple. 
So anyway, I remember very clearly that night he stayed at my house. We slept all tangled up, and then I woke up that morning with the idea firmly in place that I was going to email this girl. I kicked him out without letting him make me coffee. I wasn't mean. He was very sweet, and he even kissed me goodbye. I made myself a coffee, sat at the computer, and wrote a super direct message. Hey, I actually am kind of interested in Jeffrey Palmer. What was he like? She didn't respond for almost a month. This was back when I was wearing that stroke shirt. Excuse me. This was back when I was wearing that strokes shirt every day. That month disappeared into Brooklyn, and then I got a short email from her. She was like, yeah, totes, I don't know, what do you want to know? Bat. She signed the email, bat. This is how I imagined Brooklyn in 2008. There was an American Apparel on every corner. <laughs> this was before American Apparel became the big store at the end of every mall in America, back when it was still cool, before Dob Charney became the governor of California and sold the company to Target. Everybody was wearing American apparel, tight skinny jeans and tank tops that were sort of oversized so they draped across tiny rib cages like ancient Roman tunics almost. Everybody was in their earlier mid-twenties. Bedford Avenue was always so crowded with people of all races and both genders that there were people walking in the street, slowing down traffic, even in the middle of the night. It was like a 24-hour Fourth of July barbecue. Everyone was holding a can of Pabst with beads of water dripping down the sides and everyone was tall, very thin, and had long hair, even the boys. The girl's hair was longer, though. Some people would be wearing headbands. Sexually, it was a total free-for-all. Boys kissing boys, girls kissing boys, girls kissing girls, boys kissing boys and girls at the same time, bodies squirming together along the sidewalk like the sweatiest gay disco in the 70s. Total humidity. Everyone was a graphic designer, and everyone was in a band, and every band made dreamy, swoony music with lots of reverb and echo and vague distortion. You'd go, see the tra you'd go see them at the Trash Bar or South Bar or the McCarran Park Pool or go into Manhattan and see them at CBGB's. You'd make out with your boyfriend, who was the singer of the second-to-last band of the night in the men's bathroom. They'd just have performed, and he'd be sweaty, his hair damp, the hollow under his clavicles, and he'd reach his arm around and pull you close and grab your ass, and your breath might catch, and you'd feel his cock harden his tight jeans, so maybe you'd suck him off right there, even though there was no lock on the door. Everybody had those iPods that were like four inches long and two inches deep. Most people had the little white earbuds, but some people, your boyfriend, would have big, oversized headphones that kept out the world around them. Sometimes he'd wear oversized, slouchy hoodies. So on any night of the week, since everybody freelanced, everybody would stay up all night doing coke at somebody's beautiful converted loft, either in Williamsburg or out in Bushwick somewhere, making out or watching Wes Anderson movies or listening to the new Ariel Pink album or talking about Jonathan Safran Foer or Dave Eggers' new book, smoking cigarettes and talking, sprawled across black leather couches. The boys all had permanent stubble that was usually just long enough to be soft, but sometimes it was short and rough and it scraped your face when you kissed them. Everyone was a spaced out kind of happy, everyone had enough money, everyone was pretty, and everyone read books, and all the boys had such thick eyelashes that they looked like they were wearing mascara, and all the girls were the kind of tough that boys can't even be. After I got Bat's email, I did some math. Palmer died in 2011, so if she met him, she must have been at least 15 or 16 in 2010, right? Maybe younger, but probably not. So that would make her like 35 or 40 right now. She's probably older. Didn't matter. I was just already thinking, I'm going to meet this woman. The main reason that I was already thinking I wanted to meet her was that she had met Palmer and I was going to pump her for everything I could get about him. But another reason is that Jeffrey Palmer lived out his last two decades in Brooklyn. He was one of the original gentrifiers back in the early 90s who came to Brooklyn from Manhattan, back when people still wanted to live in Manhattan. I didn't think somebody who was in her 30s or older would be posting on that message board. 
come to think of it, nobody over 30 even should have been posting there, which, my first, which was my first hint that maybe that wasn't 100% together. Maybe she'd been posting there since she was under 30 and got grandfathered in. Whatever, it meant that most likely she'd met Palmer in Brooklyn in the early 80s, which in turn meant that she'd probably lived in Brooklyn back then, and it seemed like everybody else who was there then has either gotten old and boring or gotten over all the androgyny and danger, or else they've moved away and don't talk about it. I wanted to hear firsthand what it was like in a halcyon Camelot. The more I thought about it, the more I threw up. I got all twisted up with nerves over talking about Palmer and about meeting an internet person in real life and even about owning up to my obsession with that time period. I shook it off though and sent her exactly the message I wanted to send her. Can I interview you about him? Is it okay if I record it? If I record it. I should know by now that it's never as bad as you think it's going to be to out yourself as anything, but I was surprised that I felt relief on sending it. It was out of my hands. Letting go of it, pushing back against attachment, erasing, of course it was a relief. I drink a lot of coffee, but I usually just either drink it at work for free or steal it from work and bring it home. I can't afford to go out to other coffee shops. It's why Charles and I didn't go on dates. I couldn't afford my half. I mean, I still can't. I still live in the apartment I was living in then. I'm making a little more money an hour at the coffee shop than I was back then, so I'm still just scraping by. But I live in Brooklyn. You know my life story. When I was little, my parents let me wear girl clothes all I wanted, even to school. At school, by first grade, I was getting enough shit from the other kids that I stopped and convinced myself I was over it. Toward the end of high school, I admitted to myself and then to everyone else that I wasn't over it at all and started wearing girl clothes again. Changed my name, got on hormones, moved to New York. It's the same life story you've heard from a million trans women. It's pretty much everybody's story, although I guess some of us don't move here. The only real difference in my story is that for a long time I was super resentful about the years I'd spent trying to be a boy. I was drinking a lot, having bad news sex with jerks, doing too much coke, whatever. Till at 20, I found, I found Palmer's book, The Ephemeral Now, on the kitchen table of a boy whose name I don't even remember. I took it, read it, and started letting things go. So I feel like I owe Palmer pretty much whatever agency I have in my own life. I would have stayed in that town, married and childless, till I died if I hadn't learned to let go of some of the resentment I had toward a bunch of five-year-olds I'd been in first grade with. The 12-year-olds, boys and girls, both kinds of lunch tables, who ostracized me so effectively in junior high, and all the boys in high school I had desperate secret crushes on. I'm not mad about being broke. I'm not mad at being trans. I'm not mad at pretty much anything, and it's not because I actively try not to be mad, it's because I actively try to own, confront, and let go of that anger. It's not complicated. So that's why I decided to spend $8 on a coffee at The Verb with this girl I'd met on the internet. Nobody really knows much about Palmer because his writings were all published posthumously? Is that how we say that word? Posthumously? Because his writings were all published posthumously, and I doubted I'd ever have another chance like this. In retrospect, of course, there are reasons he kept his personal life so personal, and the fact that I wanted so badly to know more about him only shows how far I still had to go in terms of spiritual growth. I'm not mad at my younger self about it, though. So I met her at The Verb, that cafe on Bedford Avenue in Williamsburg that's been around since forever, right next to the Ikea. It feels true that it's been there for decades. The wood's all old and dark and chipped, and even though I know that light bulbs go out, instead of just getting dimmer, it feels like the light bulbs haven't been changed in 40 years. When I walked in, Interpol was playing in the speakers in the corner of the room, and I was like, why do I work at this stupid coffee shop by my house instead of here? It would probably start to feel like hokey nostalgia town eventually, but still. I bought a coffee, got a table, and started recording sound. When she walked in the door, I knew this was the woman I was here to see. She looked normal enough, just tired. Her hair was long and dark and cut in these very shaggy layers, limp enough that it might as well not have been a haircut at all, the way it hung. 
She was wearing an old white tank top, skinny jeans, these cowboy boots that looked ancient, and a short suede jacket. Basically, she looked like me on a good day, when I'm really into my outfit, feeling like I've got a modern version of a cat power thing going on, except instead of 28 and vegan, if I was 60 and didn't really take care of myself. <laughs> Veganism also is a theme, huh? <laughs> Which made me feel tired. Buy me a coffee, doll, she asked, walking straight up to my table and sitting down. Uh, sure, I said, immediately off balance, because I'd budgeted for one coffee, and the eight bucks for hers was going to come out of next week's food money. Once in a lifetime opportunity, I remember telling myself, let it go. So I bought her a coffee, which she immediately started drinking, even though it was way too hot. I was like, are you so skinny because you don't eat? Do you think coffee is food? But I had that feeling like I was in the presence of such an unknown quantity that I didn't want to say anything to make her freak out or hate me or leave me and not tell me about Palmer. So I just tried to be cool. I know I shouldn't have recorded it. Or at worst, I should have listened to the recording once when I got home, meditated on it, and deleted everything but I didn't, I still have it. So hey, she said, you're like a JP nut, right? Kinda, I said, I guess. That's cool, she said. I remember after he died, when kids were first starting to read him, I was like, that fucking weirdo? Seriously? But I guess people get something from it or whatever, so I shouldn't talk shit. Why do you think he was a weirdo? Oh my God, that fucker lived in this VHS tape castle in his own private kingdom of like, wait, okay. You can't hear it on the tape, but I swear to God here she drank the entire cup of coffee. <laughs> I still couldn't even sip mine because it was too hot. I remember thinking, this is a weird conversation, and being kind of bummed out that she hadn't introduced herself, that we hadn't hit it off, that I already knew on some level that she wasn't going to tell me anything that would mean anything to me spiritually. I already knew that this was a mistake, that I shouldn't have been recording. Okay, she said. So around like 2008, I was friends with that guy Pete Malkowitz. She paused for me acknowledge that I knew. She paused for me to acknowledge that I knew who Pete Malkowitz was, but I had no idea. He was in that band, The Fourth Joke. Blank look. They had a song in one of the Twilight prequel soundtracks, she said, moving on. That was their big moment. <laughs> Pete knew everybody at all the clubs and he'd get us into shows for free, so we'd go see bands like every night back when he was still around. Anyway, Pete was friends with this girl Melissa, and one night he was like, you gotta meet Melissa. So while I was at Pete's place off Manhattan and like Metropolitan one night, this girl Melissa buzzes up and he lets her in and I'm like, fuck you, Pete, you, you just want me to meet this bitch because she's trans too? But he's like, whatever, man. He's so fucked up on I don't even know what that you can't even be mad at him. So this girl comes in and she's nice, kind of shy, doesn't want any coke, doesn't want any weed, just kind of hangs out and drinks, you know, not a small amount of beer. And then like hours later, we find out that Pete went up on the roof and fell asleep, but we didn't know that right then. Suddenly, it's just the two of us in the room. I'm like, so how do you know Pete? And I don't even remember what she said. Who cares? We start talking. All she wants to talk about is trans stuff. And I was kind of skeezy at the time. I was kind of like, whatever. Like, maybe I'm going to play it off. Like, maybe I'm not trans. But eventually, it gets boring just listening to her stutter and hesitate and not say anything. And all I've been able to think of the whole time is like, if you get to pick your own name, why, picking, why pick something so fucking boring like Melissa? I mean, why not pick something cool? Like that, I say. On the recording, I sound bewildered. I think by this point, I've parsed most of it out, but at the time, you can hear in my voice how alien the dynamic she's describing is to me. So I ask her, and she's like, I don't know, somebody told me that you have to pick something incongruous so nobody will think twice about it. I snorted and hit the fucking bong. I was like, whatever. I remember I was healing this. She showed me a big faded blob of ink on her forearm. And I was trying not to scratch it, but like, whatever, darling. Then the night kind of blurs, and then I guess that's how we became friends. Uh-huh, I said. 
So yeah, anyway, turns out my first impression was wrong. She was actually pretty cool. She let me crash on her couch for a couple months after I got fired from Capone's. She was really funny, too. You just had to drag it out of her. Uh, she died. But maybe like a month after that, a month after that night at Pete's, he died too, actually. I was at her place, and she was like, I gotta go pick up this coat or something I left at my friend's house. I'll be back in an hour or two. But I was like, whatever. I'm not doing anything, and I've got an unlimited Metro card I found. I don't know how long it's good for, but I might as well take advantage. I'll come. I guess in retrospect, she didn't really want me to come, but back in the day, I could be kind of pushy and like, God knows how she knew Pete, and I didn't know any, of her, any other friends that she had, but I figured I was being a good friend if I came along. I was prioritizing that shit, being a good friend. So like, I went with her way the fuck out to like Mapleton or Diker Heights or some shit where you can smell the ocean, and this guy lived in a house, like a detached house, not an apartment, and he had the whole thing. 183 93rd Street. So we go in, and she's like, I'll be right out. Like, she expects me to wait outside, but it was early in the spring, and I'm kind of chilly, so I'm like, no, I'll come in. And inside the house, like, the whole place, from top to bottom, every wall is like a bookcase full of VHS tapes. It's seriously like something out of an early scene in a David Cronenberg movie where it's not totally freaky yet, just kind of weird, you know? Like, just, like, setting the mood. Sure, I said. So, okay, like, whatever. The only thing in this house is VHS tapes, and there's no couches or tables or fucking room on the walls to hang anything. I pick one up, but Melissa slaps my hand, and I'm like, okay, sorry. And we go up the rickety stairs right inside the front door. They've been painted white so many times you can feel your feet sticking to them, like inside an old church or something. Up to the second floor, where it turns out he's in this bedroom, on the bed, filming himself, talking into one of those old-timey camcorders. He was doing webcam meditations. I'm like, this whole house is a dusty pile of old tapes when the whole world runs on Netflix and DVDs and shit. It's hard not to read this without laughing. This is my favorite joke in the piece. The whole world runs on Netflix and DVDs and shit, and you're filming yourself with a video camera from 1984 the size of a fucking dog? <laughs> I don't say anything, though. Melissa's like, hey, and dude turns the camera to her, keeps filming. He's like, hey, all pimply face and fat belly and shit, which matches the couple of pictures of him that we've got. At this point, I'm basically salivating and hanging on every vulgar word she says. He's like, Hey, your jacket's under the bed, which makes sense that it, would be that it would have to be hidden because it's not a fucking VHS tape, and obviously all that's allowed in this house is VHS tapes and VHS recorders and, like, this guy himself. So she gets her jacket out from under the bed. He doesn't even get out of his bed. He's wearing this old black T-shirt with, like, a hole in the seam of one sleeve. He looks pretty gross, actually. Like, his hair is all greasy and he's kind of pimply. Melissa's like, thanks. She digs her jacket out and we go downstairs and leave. That's it, I say. Yeah, pretty much, Bat says. Well, I mean, you know, I found out about his shit later. After he died and they started publishing his books and stuff, Melissa was like, dude, Bat, remember that guy? You met him once. And I was like, who, video McCamcorder? She was like, <laughs> she was like, yeah. And explained how his work was actually kind of important and how he was recording on videotapes because they were analog so they couldn't get leaked the way an album or a movie does. And how he took a magnet to them right before he died, fucking dumbass. Why was he a dumbass? You can hear the defensiveness in my voice. I don't know, man, she says, leaning back away from my microphone. I mean, for one thing, videotapes, they're not fucking digital. You can't erase something analog with a fucking magnet, even a huge fucking giant magnet like the one Homeboy used. Some deep thinker doesn't know the difference between analog and digital. Plus, spilling your guts, watching yourself spill your guts, then erasing it? Wing that shit, man. I don't even get what his quote-unquote philosophy was supposed to be, that all things pass, big fucking insight. The conversation pretty much ends here because I got so pissed off to keep, or I got too pissed off to keep being nice to her. 
I asked if she'd ever read him, and she said that she hadn't, and I was like, so where the fuck do you get off talking shit about shit you don't know shit about? And then it pretty much goes downhill. (laughs) We're not friends. Who cares? Because this is what Brooklyn is like now. It sucks. After that conversation, I remember riding home thinking about it, thinking, of course you should let this go. And I mean, I knew Palmer wasn't the most physically attractive guy. That's one of the first things he had to figure out a way to work through, to overcome, to accept and leave behind. He wrote about it. It was hard to hear about it from somebody else, though, especially in such indelicate terms. And to hear the house he inherited from his mother, where he did his most vital work, where he had the epiphany about furniture and clothing and clutter and people and emotions and clearing out clarity, to hear it described in such stark terms. By the time I got home, I'd of course integrated it into an opportunity to let an idol go, to kill a Buddha, but I was still throwing up a little in anticipation of doing a webcam meditation about it. Maybe a long one, maybe an important one. I was thinking about that too, though. How did a person get like that? I could sort of understand the relationship between her and Melissa. Like, this was back when trans people were supposed to go deep stealth, and it was awkward to know another trans person. Nobody ever mentored anybody else, and being trans was totally stigmatized when people called each other GGs and T-girls and trannies and autogynephiliacs. But why be so obnoxious? Cocaine? I've done my share of cocaine, and it didn't stop me from looking for a piece of serenity. And why was she so judgmental? Was it leftover pain from transitioning back in the Stone Age when you still had to get a psychologist to write a letter that said you weren't crazy, even though they all thought you were crazy, and then you had to carry that letter with you everywhere? I know that back in the day, you even had to pay for hormones, so only rich people even got to transition. I don't know, man. I still don't. I try to have empathy, but seriously, fuck those damaged goods. No room for that in my life, even if it's in a context of respecting elders. Fuck a pointlessly moochy and judgmental elder. The first thing I did when I got home, though, was look up VHS tapes. Turns out that was wrong. They occupied this weird gray area between analog and digital. Like, the information they communicated was digital and that it was zeros and ones, but the tape, the medium itself, degraded from magnetic contact with the VHS player every time they were read. They communicated their digital information in an analog way. So knowing she was wrong about something, I didn't want to believe anything Bat said, but everything else was spot on. The description of 18393rd, the quantity of videos, the attention to his video recorder instead of the people in the room with him. These all fit with what we know about Palmer. She wasn't making it up. I sat down at my desk, turned on my computer, turned on the video recorder, and I started talking. I explained about how meeting Bat had been an impulse I understood from the beginning to be selfish and counterproductive, but as a human being with flaws, I hadn't been able to resist. I talked about how probably she had met Palmer and how she was probably a jerk the whole time. That being trans or having met Palmer or having lived in Brooklyn in 2008 or having probably seen all the best bands, none of this made her anything other than herself. And who she was wasn't me and who she was didn't have anything to teach me. I digressed. Of course, there was something for her to teach me. There was a lot to learn from her about idolatry and euphemisms and hero worship and how age doesn't necessarily do anything good to you. I talked about how maybe Jeffrey Palmer wasn't attractive, but that didn't matter. I remember talking about how Charles actually was attractive, one of those thoughts that bubbles up and then you let it go. I finished by talking about how in a macro sense, of course none of this mattered, and in a micro sense, it was all an opportunity to learn and grow and strengthen and let go. I watched the video once, then erased it. Then Charles came over. Our next speaker is Donna Ostrowski reading The Queer Experiment. Thank you for having me and uh, for letting me use your bathroom. Um, I have to say, uh, for an Ivy League, very reasonably priced tampons. Um, 
and the logo and the Latin motto that are, you know, printed on the outside, very classy. Um, so thank you for having me. Um, from the diary of Jennifer Rotman, March 29th, 1922. What you are about to read is the true story of the events that led to my incarceration in this so-called asylum. The police are too dim to comprehend what actually happened. My doctor's too narrow-minded, and my former friends and colleagues too invested in what pitiful shreds remain of my reputation. But someone must share this curse of knowledge, and so I commit the truth to these pages. On a clear afternoon in late November, my good friend Professor Wingate Peasley called upon me in a most excitable state. Jenny, he panted as he nearly slammed my office door behind him. I've come upon something, something grand. It will change everything. I begged him to sit and called my secretary to take his coat and bring him a mug of souchong. Once she had closed the door primly behind her, Professor Peasley continued. We'll be able to see it, everything, for the first time. See inside their minds, inside their very souls. I chuckled sweetly. Wingate, you're a psychologist. Surely that has always been your goal. No, no, you don't understand. I mean literally see with our eyes, and not only that, but to hear, to smell, to taste, to feel, to experience everything they experience, to inhabit their world. I did not need to ask him about the they to which he referred. As a tenured professor of abnormal psychology, he had made the study and treatment of homosexuals his life's work. But what was this poppycock about inhabiting their world? Surely the homosexual inhabits the same world that we do. If only I had clutched that, this naive assumption and held on for dear life, Perhaps then my mind would still be whole, and I would sleep peacefully. Instead, I pressed him. It all began a fortnight ago. I was at the library, searching for Duchamp's translation of the Sumerian graffiti found in the ruined homosexual bathhouses of Lagash. <laughs> of course, I interjected, for your researches into the proto-Babylonian loincloth code. Yes, quite, continued Peasley. Having some difficulty, I inquired with Professor Wilmoth, who directed me to the desired tome. As I sat in my plush leather chair in the dimly lit library, I found myself growing drowsy and drifted into a deep sleep. There I had the most wonderful, terrible dream. Indescribable pinks and fuchsias swirled above a city of strange, glittery beings, all of whom laughed and twirled maniacally to the unnerving beat of an otherworldly music. Just as I began to explore this fantastic city, I was awoken by a great slamming, and I blinkingly beheld a package on the desk before me. I opened it, discovering to my horror that it was none other than the Necronomicon. Here I shuddered. The Necronomicon has the dubious honor of being the prize of the university's occult collection and the center of more than a few dark rumors surrounding deaths, early retirements, and brilliant minds gone insane. I opened, I opened the book to the page marked by its ribbon, which they say is made of human skin flens from the flesh of its mad author. It took me a moment to realize what I was reading. A description of a machine used by the temple priests of Lagash to commune with an alien world, a world of strange swirling colors and glittering beings and ungodly music. Wingate, I chose my words carefully. You are one of my oldest, dearest friends, but you are speaking madness. Am I? 
then explain, Jennifer, when I showed Professor Wilmoth the passage, why did the color drain from his face? Why did he stammer that, though he had read that very copy of the Necronomicon dozens of times, he had never seen that page before that night? I swallowed. Peasley's story had pushed my scientific curiosity past the tipping point. I knew then that I was a helpless thrall to his, of his mania. Why tell me, I asked, about your dream, about the Necronomicon, about the about your dream, about the Necronomicon, about the machine. Because, he grinned almost maliciously, you're going to help me build it. Constructing a working apparatus based on faded diagrams and incantations in a 6,000-year-old book turned out to be no easy task, even for me. Without hyperbole or braggadocio, wait, I need, I need to get like a, a, a check on that. Is it braggadocio? Yeah? Yes, definitely. Okay, thanks. I got you covered. Posthumously, braggadocio. Um, without hyperbole or braggadocio, I can say that I'm the most talented engineer, mechanical or electrical, at the university. Unfortunately, the title on the bronze placard outside my office is less impressive. Jennifer Rotman, Associate Professor, Engineering. To be sure, my career has been hindered by my gender. A woman with mathematical and mechanical expertise is a rare bird in the halls of higher learning, and there are those that would see her caged. Even more of an uh, impedance, 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 like I have to say penis now just like a few times to not say impedance, impedance, just oh, penis, it just sounds like it. Um, however, were the dogged rumors surrounding my former laboratory assistant, Joanna Freiberg, when I, granted, when I was granted my professorship, Joanna was my first and only choice for an assistant. A mechanical genius with almost supernatural dexterity, her attention to detail and inspiring worth ethic were matched only by her beauty and her grace. As partners, we had a chemistry that made the long hours of study and experimentation glide by like the silken ripples of her lab coat. But our prodigious output and hours of intimacy did not go unnoticed. Friends told me of murmurings of a homosexual affair, I ignored these, dismissing them as professional jealousy, until I find, found myself occupied with impure thoughts of Joanna, her lithe figure, snow-white skin, dark eyes, and the full curly locks that cascaded down her neck. It was when I found myself almost kissing that perfect neck that I first sought out Professor Peasley. Wingate assured me that my urges were a fairly common form of hysteria experienced by unmarried women in stressful occupations. The cure was simple dismiss Joanna and redirect my lustful energies to my work. Sure enough, with the object of temptation removed from my sight, the urges more or less disappeared. Occasionally, I caught myself pining after one of the undergraduate co-eds, but a shake of my head, a sip of black coffee, and a flip through the latest journals were enough to purify myself. I did not speak, you know how that is, you're all at Barnard. You got aroused, you read some journals, it's all good. Um, I did not spare Joanna a second thought until Peasley approached me about his terrible machine. From the outset, it was clear I would need a proper assistant. Wingate wouldn't do. He was a psychologist, not an engineer, with a poor constitution to boot. I needed someone young, strong, with capable hands and discretion. Our experiment was to be unorthodox, and we did not want the harsh glare of peer scrutiny until we were ready to present our findings. Joanna had been crushed by her dismissal. The poor girl had wept and promised me anything, if only I would take her back. And it was time to hold her to that promise. 
I approached her, made my offer, and she quickly consented to my stipulation of absolute silence regarding our unwholesome project. Thenceforth, Wingate, Joanna, and myself devoted every spare moment to, the study, to study and experimentation in the abandoned barn we had purchased for our workshop. But try as we might, we could not transfigure the ancient words into a working, workable schematic, and we spent more than two weeks banging our heads against the proverbial wall. If anyone else needs to cough, I'm going to sip a little more water, so like, <laughs> cough or fart or whatever. Um, all of that changed when, after an exhausting evening of fruitless labor, Peasley went home to his wife, while Joanna and I, unencumbered by marital duties, decided the full moon and a fresh pot of coffee might be just the, thing to, uh, just the things to inspire a breakthrough. But the only thing the moonlight inspired, as it filtered through the rain-warped rafters and danced on Joanna's pale skin, was lust. And the coffee only made our hands tremble as we unfastened each other's clothing. My mind was racked with guilt, but my body was racked with pleasure. As we cried out in mutual rapture, we were shocked to discover that our words took the shape of technical instructions. <laughs> Quickly, we disengaged from each other and copied down the words we had screamed. We stayed up until dawn, engaging in acts of engineering and trebation not seen on Earth in 6,000 years. When Peasley saw our work the next day, he did not question us when we suggested that perhaps it would be best if we henceforth worked alone. A month later, the device was ready to test. On a blustery evening in late December, we gathered in our fur overcoats, clipboards in hand, ready to embark on a sensory journey to the perverted mind of the homosexual. Had I known then the depths of horror to which I was to descend that night, I would have burned the whole blasted contraption along with the cursed barn that housed it. At the stroke of midnight, I was given the honor of throwing the great switch. At first, none of us detected anything but a low humming. Then, an eerie pinkish light began to emanate, not from the machine, but from the very air. Suddenly, Wingate cried out, My God, your skin, it's twinkling, yes, glittering almost. Joanna and I looked at each other. Sure enough, our features melted into a bright, glittery silhouette, and that's when the, and that's when the barn faded from view. Wingate, Joanna, and I were transported to a city of great festive spires. As far as the eye could see it stretched, rainbow-colored edifices and streets of impossible design and gay aspect. The residents of the city twinkled like Joanna and myself and rode blinding white unicorns. <laughs> Everything seemed to move to the rhythm of a wondrous music, and it was all I could do to restrain myself from joining the swirling crowds. Behind me, I could hear Wingate furiously jotting down notes. Then the shrieking began. The unicorns reared. Their riders gestured towards Peasley. We turned to him, and I heard a primal scream escape my lungs. Where my old friend had stood was a demon, a formless hellspawn too horrible to behold. Joanna fainted. I turned away, groping for the machine. Stumbling into it, I shoved my sturdy clipboard into its mighty gears. The humming died, the spires faded away, and the pinkish light disappeared from the firmament. I looked back at Peasley. That's when I lost consciousness. The doctors here say that I am delusional, that I have suffered an emotional breakdown over the murder of my old friend, of which they so adamantly accuse me. But I know they lie. I pray every day for the hour when I'm allowed to leave their interrogations and return to my solitary cell. There, at least, I do not have to gaze upon their faces. Oh, God, their faces. For you see, that machine opened my eyes to the true and hideous form of the heterosexual. 
I pray now for the companionship of one like myself, for Joanna, but she has not come to visit, and they will not tell me where she is. Last week, a careless orderly dropped a newspaper into the wastebasket, and I was able to read it without being noticed. Inside was an account of that fateful night when the police arrived at the barn, Peasley was dead, gored in the chest with some sort of horn which was never found. I was unconscious, and Joanna was missing, as was the machine which the doctors tell me never existed. Why, then, did they find my clipboard crushed? as if by gears. So um, this is the conversation part of the panel. And um, it's 8.35. And I have a few questions for our writers, our panelists. And then I also want to make sure that people in the audience um, are able to ask questions. Uh, But the first question that I have um, that I was thinking about as I was hearing each of you read um, is how is literature political or do you find it to be political? Or is it not political? I can, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll take the reins Thanks. on that one. Okay. Um, I, think that, um, I think that literature has the ability to be Either it can either be very political or it can be completely apolitical. I would say that uh, you know James Patterson is fairly apolitical. It's just about selling books. The guy that wrote Doctor Zhivago, yes, very political. Yes. yes. Um, but um, when it comes from when it comes from various sources or describes different experiences, it can be very political. Describing a trans experience in literature to me is an inherently political act because. embodiments of trans people in culture do not exist and when those don't exist in our culture it is a uh, tacit approval of trans people not existing in our culture so when when a narrative when literature is created that includes those stories and includes characters that are uh, built that way uh, it's it's much, it, it's very political, it's, in, it's inescapably political. I would say that anyone writing trans characters um, and just, and, and, and not thinking in political terms and not accepting the politicized nature of creating those characters is, is uh, fooling themselves or lying to everyone else. I, I think you have to know that it's political to create those characters and it's like that with so many other peoples. Uh, it's, it's not just trans people but you know, in, for the purposes of this panel, it's tra- creating trans characters is absolutely political. Thank you. Ditto. I just thinking. I really hate politics, and I really would not like it to be entering into the conversation. I mean, you don't have a political discussion saying, you know, is politics literature? Mm. Um, I would rather just write stories. I'd rather use this to share and meet with people. Mm-hmm. Um, I love this idea of being able to read for everyone and, and to listen to good stories, too. Unfortunately, it isn't an ideal world. And people come into a reading, especially if you see, you know, um, you know, we four women reading this way. Of course, there's preconceptions coming into that. And so part and parcel of existing in the real world is politicizing our work. Um, but for me personally, I mean, you know, politics, if I never had to see politics again and just had the world just exist in a good way, 
I'd be so, so happy. But it is that it is. Yeah, and to piggyback on that, I mean, the question of the relationship of the personal to the political is mm -hmm. still a question, right? We haven't solved it. Um, and my own experience of literature has always been extremely personal, um, like contextualized in any number of ways, but still, um, it seems like literature is neither solely personal nor political, right? Like, if you're turning out literature that is in no way personal to yourself as the writer, what are you doing? <laughs> but also, you know, you'd have to be coming from a privilege, an extremely privileged place in order to be turning out work that is relevant to yourself, but also somehow completely apolitical, I think. And so, um, in that context, I feel like the writing of trans women specifically is necessarily political, although without the kind of connotation of like carrying picket signs and those kinds of things, um, or vote for this presidential candidate or whatever. Um, so yeah, it seems like. Yeah, and it's the same thing. I mean, we talk about trans women, but just women in general, right? I mean, wombs are political, breasts are political. I mean, do you really, if you had your druthers, I mean, I think many people just want their bodies to be bodies, but you know, our embodiment is political and that's just part of being oppressed. Um, at the Sylvia Vera Law Project, where I work, we talk about how oppression, um, one form of oppression is inextricably linked to other forms of oppression, so I thought about that as you were speaking. And I'm, I'm wondering, um, because I'm sensing that we are in this moment of increased visibility, increased um, understanding, increased empathy, um, not necessarily in, um, increased political action because we've always been political actors. I'm, I'm speaking of like the legacy of trans women engaged in political work, um, but people who are not trans women understanding that and that being intelligible. So I'm thinking about this moment of where um, there's uh, maybe a smaller amounts of access um, that have increased, right? Um, and smaller amounts of visibility that have increased. And so I'm wondering if, um, how do we use this moment, or if you have insights into how we use this moment uh, in a way that we ensure that the form of oppression that we navigate, or one form of oppression that we navigate, which is uh, transmisogyny or transphobia or anti-trans women hatred, um, still remains linked to other forms of oppression, right? So we don't become um, a group of folks that um, the only ones we see are the most respectable, right? So the neuronormative neuro ones, or the wealthy ones, or only the white ones, or the non-disabled ones. I'm wonder so I'm thinking about that, and I wonder if you have any thoughts about how do we use this moment and use this fact that we are a group of writers up here um, to engage in this legacy of activism that has always been linked with other forms of activism? I think that um, that just including those those elements in, in any narrative, considering, um, you know, I, I'll use my own story as an example, of, is that this person is not just trans, and in fact, be, her being trans is a very minor part of the narrative. Um, she has the conflict of being an intellectual, living in an anti-intellectual place. She has the con context of being raised by people in the people from the north in the south, being raised by people who 
uh, you get a little bit of gleaning that they probably have more money than the surrounding community, and so being raised in all these kind of um, juxtaposed positions to her surroundings, both as a trans person, as a ostensibly wealthy person, and as a as a person coming from different cultural backgrounds, um, and you know that doesn't cover a whole range of intersectional op oppressions that exist. You know, she's still a, a white person. She's you know, I mean, I, really, it's never discussed. I, I see her as a white person, but that, you know, it can work for anybody um, how they choose. But it's, it's you know, there's, there's, it doesn't necessarily discuss anything, but I think that's the power of the writer is that you can create these narratives. Um, a thing that actually has been funny to me but also is really interesting is how much um, people assume that this character is me. And that I'm that, that that you know I've I have had so many people be like oh you should go to this eating competition now and it's like no this person's actually made up this is not this is not this is not autobiographical at all I actually have no interest in doing that um, and it's so it's almost jarring to people to read trans narratives that are entirely fictional um, and I think having access to the to the power to create fiction, an actual true fiction that is not autobiographical or tongue-in-cheek semi-autobiographical. I mean, we had Stone Butch Blues forever, and you know, it was it was a wonderful read. But the idea that it was fiction was always kind of this like laughable thing because it's basically Leslie Feinberg's life, um, and. So creating characters that are more separated from us um, is, is a power that we have as writers. And when we create characters that are separated from us, we can take into account all these other things uh, that, that might exist um, differently than, than, we than we experience it. And you can take it into the context of these much larger uh, intersections of oppression. Yeah, and um, I'm not Vietnamese, so <laughs> just thought I'd bring that up. Um, you know, so, but also with these oppressions, just something else to just to bring up. As trans women, we're in the DSM-4. And as trans people, that means in somebody's book, we're crazy. We're, and I think that that sort of pathologization is something that, again, we have to work against. Um, one of, I think, and this is this speaks to a larger problem, you know. People, um, you know, a phobia against people with mental illness in general, and that's just the way things are. But um, I put it as a challenge, not just for. I, I think, you know, to a large extent, you just heard people. We're doing our job, and what I'm hoping is that you know, some of us can sort of that you see that when you're listening to this, if you can just open up a little bit and. You're, you're not here to learn about trans women. Hopefully you're here to learn a little bit about yourself through our experience. I mean, I was joking, I'm trans so you don't have to be. You know, if you can learn anything from my experience, and it, it, it renders you a wiser, more capable, more, I mean, happier, more enlightened person, I've done my job. And I'm, ho and I'm hoping and trusting that if we have that kind of exchange, you can't help but see my struggle as related somehow with yours. I also, I think it's interesting with literature specifically because accepting kind of outlier experiences like this where one person at a time is reading to a number of people, it's a very individual relationship that you have with the text. Um, and so I think a reason that people 
maybe this isn't everybody's experience, but most trans women that I know are kind of bored of stories that are like, you know, here's what it's like to be trans. That's the story. Um, I, yeah, I had a writing teacher years ago. I shouldn't have admitted that I took a writing class. It was 12 years ago, and I barely even showed up. <laughs> um, it happens to the best of us, left. <laughs> but she was talking about... Um, what? Somebody hacked something? Um, I had a teacher who was talking about the New Yorker short story that was kind of in vogue in the late 90s that may have still gone. But these stories that are like, let me show you my culture, and that's the whole story, and it was much more based on almost like an exotification relationship with um, racial or geographical cultures, whatever kind of um, term the individual story was using. But um, yeah, those stories only go so far in terms of like reinforcing the privilege systems that produce them and publish them and these things. And what you can do with kind of what Topside Press has done to get distribution on this collection, to publicize this, is to get it in people's hands. And so if this were a collection of like, here's like step by step how I got hormones, like here's what it was like to be on hormones for the first six months, and here's like these stories that I, I've read a million billion times, and I think probably many of us here have read a million billion times, it would kind of be like, well, what are we doing? But instead, you know, we're, we're getting a lot of different kinds of experiences in the service of a narrative that therefore kind of, I mean, produces a relationship in the reader with the writer, right? In a way that, you know, other kinds of cultural production or whatever don't really have a way to do. And so I think that specifically is what is interesting to me about this format in this way and why I'm stoked on this book. Oh, should I say something? Um, everyone said really smart things. Um, yeah, uh, to, I guess to go off sort of what Imogen was saying, like as far as how we take this moment to sort of, I don't know, address these these problems of, of other kinds of oppression that, that intersect and intermingle and carpool and such. Um, I don't know, like I think, yeah, there's definitely this like show and tell aspect to a lot of like trans stories or trans narratives. And it's almost like a kind of apology a lot of the time or, or it just, you know, we're, we're trying to make ourselves likable. I mean, not to speak for myself or everyone here. Well, I guess I should speak for myself, but not to speak for like other trans women, but like, you know, we're normal people too. It's, um, the problem with that is, is yeah, when you say I'm a normal person too, and if the normal is like white and wealthy and able-bodied and everything, um, then you've got to distance yourself from everything that's not that. Um, and I think sort of the way we can take advantage of this moment is just to not apologize. And, you know, obviously I'm like, well, not obviously, but guess what? I'm middle class, I went to NYU, um, and I'm white and I'm able-bodied. Um, but what we can do, I guess, is just sort of not apologize. And, and I guess this doesn't really have anything to do with literature, but you know, when, when someone, I don't know, when it's, I don't even know, I don't have anything smart to say. But I don't know, to, yeah, um, to sort of, to make this, yeah, or like Red was saying, to not apologize with these stories and in fact to, to provoke people. I just want to say one last thing too. I mean, look where we are. We're here at Barnard. It, you know, one of the advantages of being at a women's college is that that women's stuff is taken care of. Now you can go find out all the other cool things that you do. And as trans writers, that's kind of where we would like to be too. Let's just take care of that shit and then go do all the other things that make us individuals. Just end of it. Thank you. 
I, I was just thinking about um, the fact that we're at Barnard and the fact that there's long legacies of um, you know, women's only spaces being extremely hostile to trans women um, and feminism in a particular form being very hostile to trans women. Um, and so I, just this conversation happening here feels really powerful and profound um, and it doesn't erase the systemic you know, histories um, and legacies of violence towards trans women coming from spaces like this, but I do think that it's a powerful statement that we're here um, unapologetically, like you were saying. I think that it's time to take questions from the audience because it's almost nine, so I'd love to open it up. Yes. So those were all really amazing. Thank you guys so much for doing the reading. Um, they were all fictional, and I'm a huge fan of fiction and fantasy and sci-fi and all nerdy, awesome stuff. And I was wondering if there are trans identity representations and characters that you uh, as individuals really like, um, any one that stands out in your mind? No. No. Yeah, that's my answer, is no. I have, I have seen, I have seen a, 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 a lot, um, and I feel like I, the, you know, the challenge with, with increasing trans visibility as we have it now in, in general popular culture is that now every show has a joke about trans women and they have characters that are jokes. They, it happens on 30 Rock, it happens on Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It shows that I, I wanna watch and enjoy otherwise. And I always have to turn off my feelings when I'm watching television because if I come up, I am the butt of the joke. And I have never seen a representation of a trans character um, outside of specifically low budget, queer produced, like trans produced stuff in, in popular culture, anywhere else, like, and, and in literature, I can't think of a single one. So the answer for, for me is no, none, nobody. There's, there's nothing, and I'm actually, that's what makes me happy about this book, is that now I can, now I can actually look at, look at characters that I appreciate, um, because I've never seen it elsewhere. Every time you see some shit like that, there's some girl somewhere thinking she's a monster. Just remember that. Also, like Red was saying, it just sort of, yeah, that's more serious, but also, I don't know why I'm even talking, because you already said it, but it really sucks to, like, I don't know, like, did anyone see that show, Wilfred, with, um, with Elijah Wood? It was like, okay, it's actually pretty good, the first episode, and then the second episode, there's like a five-minute tranny joke, and it's like, I don't know, Red already said it, it just sucks, because, like, I'm a comedy fan, and, like, I'm a sci-fi and fantasy fan, too, and, like, I don't know. I want stuff to watch that's good and doesn't make me sad. What Red said. Do y'all know Marble Hornets? Yeah. yeah. No trans jokes so far in Marble Hornets. Um. Sesame Street has been pretty good so far, too. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the, the majority of... I feel like I'm talking a lot. Um, the majority, like the very overwhelming majority of trans characters on TV, movies, books, and these things are written by cis people, right? Um, and they're often either kind of pandering or like cartoon or caricatures or else um, kind of modeled on this idea of tolerance. Let's show how hard it is for trans people. That'll really accomplish something. Um, which is not to say that cis people can't get trans people, right? Like I totally have cis friends, but... Um, <laughs> Some of them are here tonight. 
<laughs> Show of hands. Um. <laughs> it's okay. You don't need to out yourself. It's okay. Yeah, this is a safe space. Yeah. Um. <laughs> but so it's wild the way that those things consistently happen, right? Consistently, the writer of the TV show is not a trans person. So, therefore, unless they're particularly engaged and working really hard and probably have trans people in their life, um, they're going to do a shitty job. And we've seen that for as long as I've been alive, right? Like, um, which, again, I feel like we're selling this book pretty hard, but it's cool that uh, most, if not all, of the contributors are trans people. And so most, if not all, of the stories go a little bit deeper or a little bit more, you know what I mean? I would also love to hear, if y'all know trans people who are producing fiction, media kinds of things, I would please tell me about it afterward, you, or right now. No. You know, the thing is, too, I have no clue what's going on, you know, in your lives, and so for, you know, me to claim survivor status, yeah, I've gone through shit and car courage, yeah, I've had to be courageous, but so have you. And, you know, if you were writing something and if I said you're so courageous, you'd probably go, that's really nice, but did you really hear my poem? And that's the same thing. I mean, look, yeah, being trans sucks, but being a lot of things sucks. I mean, that's the world. That's the way the world is. Um, I forget what the original question was, but talking about as we were like trans. Oh, it was about trans. So we've all been on topic. Okay. Um, but I think one of the things tying sort of like feminism and and trans rights, specifically for trans women, together is that um, a lot of the problems is is not even. It is with you know cis writers on every television show. Um, but it's specific, but it's not specifically, but it's also a lot to do with the fact that there aren't many women writers in television that are sort of allowed to get to the top. Um, because I was thinking about it, because the show Wilfred, it's like, and also Always Sunny, it's like so many of the jokes are like about straight guys being skeeved out by trans women. And like that's the sort of thing that only like a straight guy would write because it's like funny. It's like, oh, I don't want to have sex with her. Like, because she's, oh, it's a double date, but the other one's fat. Or like, oh, she's got a penis. Um, so, so I don't know. I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's part of a larger struggle. And it really, you know, it involves trans women, but also involves women in a more broad sense. I guess I have a, a little bit of a, this will be a tangential to the original question, but that just made me think of it. Um, you had mentioned a concept of, of trans misogyny and... Um, I think that's a, you know, it's a fairly newish concept, and I like it in some ways, but in a lot of ways I don't like it because I'm like, even in misogyny, trans women can't be without all other women, uh -huh. like, uh -huh. and it's so, like, it, it's so frustrating, and the ways that trans women are often um, affected by trans misogyny is actually just the way that misogyny affects women. When a woman is too assertive, she's always she's always been considered too mannish. It's always been you're being you're being a man, and like that is throughout history. That is not a new concept. Um, and the you know there's only a minor difference to me um, in that when a trans woman's womanhood is is attacked or curtailed or in any way tried to be taken from her, that it becomes this literal taking of your womanhood. It's not just you're not being the right kind of woman. It's this is because you're not a woman. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and so separating it, so having con separate concepts of trans misogyny versus misogyny, has, to me it just feels so unnecessary because trans misogyny, as far as I'm concerned, is one lens of misogyny, and misogyny finds all kinds of lenses. It finds lenses based on race and ability and appearance and acceptability in terms of behavior and all things. So to have this special separate 
trans misogyny to me is not only unnecessary, but it's, an, it's again that one thing of, of trans women being separated from all other women, even when we're talking about misogyny. Right. Um, so it's, it's that same kind of thing as of the part of the, the problem that there aren't enough um, there aren't enough trans characters, maybe part because there's not enough women writers, and it's you know all these different again intersections of, of oppression work in all these different ways, and that's kind of the context that trans women can find themselves within. That is understanding a, a place within within broader conversations about misogyny and oppression in general. Well, this one isn't about what it's like to be trans, but um, <clears throat> who are books for nowadays? Like, like as as a performer. Um, I think a lot about who my audience is and how to connect with them, and we've talked about kind of how a book connects with the reader, but who's reading, like how as books as activism, who are books for nowadays? Because I feel like that's shifting. That's a great question. I have a response to that. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, my initial response is books are for me. Like, I <laughs> am stoked on books, I do a lot of reading, and so like books are for people who like me enjoy books. But um, I think, the question, like kind of the, the underlying question to that is like, oh, Annie, I wish your head wasn't behind somebody else's head. Your head is cool though, it's just that. Um, <laughs> like, what is this book going to do? Like, how is this book gonna change things? Um, and Red and I had a little conversation about smart things that we were gonna say at this panel, and so. I was excluded yeah. and just heard about it. I would like to qualify that everything I've said is completely off the cuff. Yeah, she, did, she hadn't said any of the cool stuff yet that she was gonna say. Um, we're all familiar with patriarchy. Yes? Okay, I'll tell you about it in a little bit after like 10. Um, so, we talk about internalized transphobia, we talk about how we internalize racism, we internalize sexism in, sexism in these things, and then we work to not allow the, ourselves, or like, not to express these things, right? Like, you can't help but internalize this poisonous culture. Um, and I made up the word gaytriarchy to talk about the way that we as queer people internalize patriarchy in these ways and often don't check ourselves on it. Um, and what I see happening a lot in queer communities is the way that trans men are privileged, masculinity is privileged, and trans women are kind of swept aside or treated as crazy or stupid or whatever, um, really mimics the way that this happens in broader culture at large. This is patriarchy just in a gay context. And so what I see this book doing, queer people read is my experience, not all queer people, but a large number of people who I'm friends with in queer communities do reading. And so, taking the awareness of like, oh right, like we've done a shitty job with trans people a lot of the time, um, it does not necessarily solve it. Whereas reading a book, talking about things that you may not have considered, engaging with this text for a week or for 28 stories or however long you're engaging with it, does feel like taking it to the next step of kind of learning to understand the ways that these things work in any number of ways. And so, that I think is who and why reads. Who reads and why. Such a good quote. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Do y'all want to respond, or should we go to the next? I, I have a response to yeah. that. Um, I think that um, who books are for depends on the book, um, and uh, if we talk about it in the context of uh, books, books that in any way deal with trans people. Um, it's a big question. Who is this book for? And when we talk about trans literature and what has come in the past, 
those books are for cis people and oftentimes are acting as an allegory to explain an experience to people who are not initiated into that experience. And trans books for trans people have, or books about, or in books, books have not been for trans people is essentially what I'm trying to say and I keep weirdly dancing around it. Um, but books have, books, books regarding trans people have been for cis people and we're starting to see an emergence where we're creating work for trans people and cis people getting it is a nice bonus. Um, you know, the, the book, book that I'm tweaking now is, is entirely focused on trans people. There's zero, zero 101. Um, if you don't know anything about trans people, you will not understand this book. Um, and it is based entirely out of not giving a fuck who can understand what's in it. And if you don't know, then you, you know, you have no excuse. In, in 2012, there's no excuse for not knowing shit because there is Google and it is there and you can use it. And, you know, you, you might have a public library, you might have something. I, I get so sick of hearing the question of like, well, I don't know anything or having that and having to read these stupid books that are just being written to explain shit to people who aren't me um, when I want to read characters that I can relate to. Um, I mean, they're, to, to me it's like, cis people who have, you have all the other books too. All those books are yours and they're based on the assumption that we all understand what it means to be cis. I have no idea what it means to be cis. I really don't. Like, I'm very, I'm very immersed in a cis culture um, but it's, it, it's not my experience, so I'm not sure. Like, and um, I wish there was CIS 101 books for me, um, but so I'm sick of, I'm, I'm, I get so sick of their, every piece of, of creative energy at all dealing with trans people is all for this audience that isn't trans people, and I feel like the power of creating content for trans people is literally life-saving. Um, there, there are just so many people out there who need to see themselves represented in a way that is affirming and is positive and is, is, is genuinely creative and, and speaks to them specifically or they are going to die. And it's, it's, it's that level to me. Um, and there's, there's, all other, there's all kinds of social justice work that can be done and that, that isn't like that. And this is, the, this is where, I, where I feel like I'm able to do something and I feel like I'm on solid ground with how I can create content and things. And, and I, I put it at a level of it's literally life-saving to create relatable characters for trans people and, and, and without regard to who else needs to get it because there needs to be stuff that isn't about people who aren't trans getting it. It's, it just needs to not be the priority. Hey, Red, what's the title of the book you're tweaking right now? Ready, Amy, Fire. As a person of color, I've grown up my entire life not seeing myself represented. I have had to go, like, deal with, I mean, I thought, you know, it's like, you know, there's really nothing. And I've discovered that, you know, maybe not discovered, I shouldn't say discovered, that, that's really arrogant, but within the communities of color, there's something really interesting. You find out that we have this capacity to project and identify and take the best out of what we see. And, you know, you're not going to find a, a character, you know, in Western media or Western, um, you know, movies or anything, you know, of compassionate, fully fleshed out uh, Asian. 
male, female, whatever, it's just not gonna happen. Uh, you're not gonna find too many characters. You just, just kind of like it's fucked up being POC. I mean, that's just the way it is. And so, but the flip side of this, and I think this is, this is where I kind of differ just a little bit. Um, after a while, I just fucking don't care. After a while, it's just, I'm never gonna see representation. I don't even know what the fuck that looks like. You know, I don't feel a loss. I never had it. What I've had to gain is, you know, a connection regardless of, in spite of, there's still this. In spite of X, there is still Y. And I want to provide that Y for people. I've kind of grown much more personal, where, you know, I can go to a used bookstore and find this author I've never known. And all of a sudden, she or he or Z and I are relating, and I'm, and I'm learning something. And... Um, you know, and some, maybe being a person of color is a blessing because I've never had the expectation of finding somebody I could relate to. And it's always seemed kind of subversive when I can find somebody to relate to, something very secret and personal. And for me, my audience is that person. I think of my work and I think highly about my audience. I, I don't know who she is that's gonna read my book. I don't know, so I wanna make it good. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that you know, that my book can be somebody else's message in a bottle. And that, you know, somewhere we might meet each other in the subway and wink or something. And, and it's that kind of feeling because I have never expected society to, to reflect me. I have never asked anything of society. And I, and I think it's sometimes dangerous to do so. I'm, you know, but in that, in that surrounding, you know, there's still this. I think that's a really incredible point. All of you raised such necessary points. And one of the things that I, makes me think about is um, how, as a trans woman of color, as a black trans woman, um, even myself, I, I sometimes like question, I'm like, who am I directing this to? And finding value that it's um, necessary and important um, that trans women of color are a valuable audience. Like, it is important that we create stuff for other trans women of color. Um, and, I, and I think that's not always the default. In fact, I think that's very rarely the default, and white supremacy works really intensely to make that not the default um, and make me, and I agree, lose any expectation that that would ever be the case. Um, so I think it's really valuable that we're writing for trans people, for trans people of color, for trans people who are disabled, for trans people who are navigating migration, for trans, you know, for, for a long um, and wide community of trans people. I think that y'all raised some really good points around that. Um, so some of you have mentioned before um, the fact that a lot of trans literature is memoir. Um, like if you just go looking for a book about trans folks, you're gonna find a lot of people just writing memoirs about their transition. Um, and I think, Red, you mentioned like people assuming that like the character in a Roman incident is you, because I think that there is this assumption that trans people can only really talk about themselves. Um, and I'm just sort of wondering, as as fiction writers, like have you sort of encountered that pushback? That assumption, like obviously, you know, you have in that specific context. But I'm just wondering how sort of you as writers interact with this legacy of of a literature of memoir that is in some ways really like problematic. Yeah, I, um, I love being the first person to answer every question. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I 
think that that's that's been what's available to to trans people is memoirs, and that's what um, there's there are various reasons for that. That is what publishers will publish. Publishers don't care about. Uh, don't care about trans characters in literature, particularly they don't care about trans protagonists. They, they just need this sensational thing and it's the easiest thing to do. Um, and I think that a lot of times, you know, they, when people get bitter about memoir being the only thing, it, it can seem like memoir is created solely out of arrogance. I think there's a flip side of the coin where memoir is created because there aren't relatable, there aren't those relatable experiences in other fiction. The idea of creating fictitious characters um, is, is, is almost foreign to, to trans authors when they sit down to write, and it becomes the only story I know how to tell that tells a trans story is my own. And so it takes a, it, it does take, I think, a little bit of extra work to create a, a, a meaningful trans character for literature, and I, I wouldn't say that I've experienced any pushback um, other than other than what I've already said, which is just this assumption that some part of this character is me, and maybe there are parts of this character that that are me. I mean, that's but the but it's not who I am, and it's not a it's it's not autobiographical. It's not my story. I didn't get here by um, competing in the Hooters World Wing Eating Championship. I just want everyone to be aware of that. Um, I got here by being uh, very funny. Um, <laughs> And so, so that's, I guess that's kind of my opinion. Is mem memoir is what is the legacy of what trans people have written to date um, because it's what trans people have been allowed to write and it's because it, it's that kind of vicious cycle where there aren't any trans narratives so the only trans narrative I know how to tell is my own. Um, and that's what I, it, that's why I think that Topside Press is so important. Um, because it has broken that cycle where there's actually just an investment in, create, in, in publishing literature from trans people about trans people that is fiction. And creating fiction, I think, is very, is, is very important because it is one way that cultures lend themselves credence both to themselves and to an external world where it's not necessarily explaining uh, real real things, but it's creating, it creates culture, it creates content, um, and it, it becomes, it's not just a follower of culture, it's an it's a engine of culture. Um, and it works for all people, all, all, all cultures who create their own stories and their own narratives that, that are fictitious um, are, are, are able to ex expand themselves and, and learn from that in ways that you can't learn from memoir and you can't learn from history. If that had been the only thing that had come out of, out of Western culture or Eastern culture or African culture or any of those cultures, you would see, a very, you would see those as very different. They would be far more stunted creatively. And all of those cultures, because they have created fiction and used their imaginations to, to create these things and exist in these ways, it is, um, they're, they're very different. And you see these differences um, you see these differences elaborate themselves. So I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. Um, it basically, 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 we're at a point. We're at a point where we're pivoting away from memoir. Um, and there will certainly always be memoir, especially coming out of larger publishing houses that don't actually care about trans people. They care about what books they can sell. Um, so, so that it'll always exist. But kind of veering off from that, I think is important and necessary for trans people to find, find new avenues for themselves.
I also, well, I just think about um, what Rico was saying. I think about a few things, like access to different forms of writing and access to um, being able to tell your story. So I think it's, it's just like, for me, it's a complicated question. It's, um, so rare, so few people are encouraged to tell their stories. And so, um, and storytelling and telling your own story, which I find memoirs sometimes do, the best memoirs do, um, is to me an extremely like powerfully political act. And one that I think is important for me as a person to support because of how white supremacy and patriarchy and sexism and transphobia operate, we're just really, for me, I would say, I'm strongly encouraged to never tell my story. And I think one of the things that um, is so valuable about Topside is that um, there's a way to tell a story, but it's a fictitious story, right? So you can tell, you, it's not necessarily your own story, but it's the character's story. And I, so I, I think there's something about both and, like both really strong memoirs and continuing to tell people to tell your story, but something that has never existed before is topside press. And something that has never existed before is you know, literature that's written by trans people that's fiction for other trans people. And I think that's just such a powerful intervention. Um, yeah. It's, Anyway, the thing about it too is not simply with Topside and these presses. It's not simply that it is um, that these presses publish um, trans writers, but they're edited by trans editors yeah. and things like that as well. Yeah. I um I just I remember this one thing. I was asked to write a a piece on you know trans erotica, you know blah blah blah, and you know you know. I don't think of myself as a fetish, you know? I get up, I have sex with my, you know, with my partner, or occasionally masturbate, I mean, it's like not that big a deal. It's, uh -huh. it's my body, it's that, that is that it is. But I'm not gonna write that, <laughs> you know? I mean, I'm sorry, I mean, I'm not my own beat-off material, okay? I mean, it's just, it's just that, that's what it is, it's just something. I'm so, like you know, totally autogynophilic, by the <laughs> way, like, textbook. I'm just kidding, because that's like not a thing. Go on. <laughs> so, you know, what, what, what I find erotic is, you know, and things like that, I, you know, it's uh, things about transformation. I've always felt that way. I've always had that. So, mm -hmm. you know, what it's like, so I wrote about, you know, someone having sex with a dog. And, you know, they didn't like it. <laughs> and my thing is, if you want to fucking open up, you know, into like what, what I think, you know, then deal with it, you uh -huh. know? Uh -huh. Otherwise, you know, and, and the thing about it is I think that with, with an editor who has, you know, really fucked up transphobic expectations from the beginning, they're going to get really fucked up, you know, you know, transphobic anthology, no matter, you know, just by their selection. <laughs> and, you know, so there it is. I think one, it's not just, I think we overlook that this isn't just trans writers. These are trans publishers and trans editors with power and I think everybody benefits because you know really it's a good story it's a dog and you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, my take on the memoir question yeah. is that um, I feel like 
memoir or a memoir by a trans person that's just about being a trans person and that's like what's going on doesn't actually serve to kick down any doors but reinforces cis normativity, right? Like, look at this amazing but true story. And regardless of how it's framed and regardless of how the author intends for it to be read, this is the cultural context into which it's dropped, right? Like, this is a novel just about somebody who's trans. It's like, weird, or not a novel, a memoir. How many of those have we had, right? Like, there are already a lot of them. Um, and so, um, I don't know. I have a book coming out from Topside called Nevada uh, in March, and it's explicitly kind of the project at the center of it. Because I was like, I'm so bored of reading about people's transitions. Like, I get it. I did it. We all have access to this information. Like, I want to read about somebody who's like years after transitioning and somebody who's years before transitioning and like see how they interact. And so that's kind of the central like question at the center of that novel, which would can't imagine, you know, HarperCollins printing that novel or memoir, right? Like, Oh, they're fucked up like everybody else. Who would have thought? <laughs> I guess that's not a cohesive. No, that's great. Yeah. That's important. I, I would, I would, um, I guess add add to that 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 focus on transition as the crux of any trans narrative um, in terms of what's allowed to be published and what's allowed to be produced. You look at any, you look at Trans America, you look at whatever, that, that shit. It's all this, this very transition focused and then the end of the story is there, got, the, got the SRS done, story over. Um, and it's because, in, in my estimation, it's because that is the only thing interesting about trans people to the cis people who are creating this content and the cis people who are funding this content and publishing this content. It's the only thing they want to hear and they will literally have moments where, where if you were to suggest that you, you make a story about a trans person who's at a completely different stage in their life that isn't about the awkwardness of transition and the magic of going from one <laughs> gender to, the no to another. They, it, their question is like, well then why, what's the point of making this tra character trans? And it's just like, cause, cause people do stuff. Like, you, you know, it's like, what is a trans narrative that isn't a trans, trans, transition narrative? You can have a trans person who opens a pizza shop and hijinks happen, or somebody who flies in a spaceship. Like, it's, it doesn't... And hijinks can't fly in space. The idea, the idea that trans characters can just be people who are trans is mind-blowing to, to, the, to the content creators that have existed so far. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is also a value of the collection, is that there's all these stories where it's just like, I just work at a, I just work at a coffee shop, or I'm just living here. Like, it's, it's, there's not this, this magical transformation story. Um, and it, it's very important to, to actually counteract that idea that the only part of trans people's experiences worth looking at or hearing about is transition. Can this I, is the end. Um, and what that does, by focusing specifically and only on transition, right, is to draw this narrative where like a person is a cis person, and then they're a trans person, and then they're a cis person again, which completely erases trans lives, right? Like, being trans affects you before you transition, and being trans affects your life after transition, and that's completely erased by this very cis-normative um, model of producing stories, Absolutely. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you, I mean, you, you have, you, even with that, there's this expectation is, if, uh, that if you can't do that, if, that if you can't go from cis to trans to cis again and, and work in that life, then you're, you're, some, you're, you're even more marginal. I'm never going to be a person who, who walks through life and 
you know, is just is normal by that by that standard. I'm always going to be the person. Like I'm, I, I have accepted in my life that I am never just going to comfortably shop for groceries again and for the for as long as I live. Like that's that's my life. What about that stop um, and shop delivery service, though? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> my one, uh, it's not even a pushback. Is that I imagine that there are memoirs that don't just do that, and that there's a possibility for a memoir to not just do that. There's a, there's, there's a possibility, and yeah. that the content creators aren't necessarily interested in that, and nor are the publishing houses that make a lot of money, nor uh, you know, the studios that would make that into a film. But um, Imagine no transition. Exactly. Nor, you know, the top 40 <laughs> Billboard songs. Um, you know, I, I just I imagine that there's um, room for that as well. Yeah, when I talk when I talk about memoir, I, I talk about how it has existed, not not its potential. I think right. there's definitely potential in memoirs that that are not what they've always been. But I've I have never seen one from somebody who wasn't wasn't white, wasn't um, right. surgery oriented, and wasn't about specifically about their transition. Right. But but I do think there's a lot of power and potential in memoir. I don't want to rob it of that right. because. There, like some people have really good, really interesting stories. The people who control what stories we get to hear don't give a shit about those stories so far. Also, the shit's expensive, mm -hmm. which means you're bringing class into it. Mm -hmm. And you know, there are some people who just can't. I mean, like I work with, uh, you know, youth of color in LA, and they define somebody. Uh, you know, if you're a sex worker you can get your uh, transition because that's the only way you can make enough money to go ahead and do that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you kind of like bring class into it and that's really kind of a mess too. That's really problematic as well. Um, you, know, you know, personally, I hear some people just kind of like thinking, you know, I'm trans, I'm going to do this, I'm going to get this doctor, this identity, this, this, I'm going to get the surgery and I'm going to be a woman. I'm going, that is so not the way it is, you know. Um, it's like that episode in um, Pokemon where they evolved the, the Pokemon too quickly, and you know, oh, yeah, 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 that one. And, and it taught and you how to use the B button. Yeah, that that when you poor thing the didn't game. even learn all the Pikachu moves. It was it, it just turned into Raichu right away, yeah. and all of a sudden it's like, and you know, Pikachu refuses to evolve. And I, I just think you know, sometimes it's kind of good being Pikachu. Use agility, and it's all good. How do you see your role as a writer? Do you think you have a responsibility to fight privilege in your work? I write the best story I can. I smile a lot. I show up on time to the readings, and I, you know, explain when I when I'm asked questions. I do the best I can. In other words, I work really hard at my craft. I, you know, I flew out here from L.A. on my own dime because I believed in this reading. Mm -hmm. um, I, I care, and I, I and I put that into every word I write. That's where my job ends. What you do with it, to me, is your business. I, 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 have some, I have some ideas of where I'd like it to be, but it's like letting a child go. It's, it's an adult. It, it's ready to, I've, I've done the best I can. And so wherever she fits in the world, I'll support her. I think that, um, I, I think that the, there's, for, for me personally as, as, a, as a writer and where my, my work and where 
I, I wouldn't even say for as a writer. Like a writer, being a writer is a thing that just sort of happened to me very recently. Um, I've been a comedian and done other, created other content. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to project an idea that, that a, a sort of like almost do-it-yourself idea, um, which can be really complicated. And it's rarely this perfect creation that encompasses everyone and, and takes into account all possible narratives. Because I'm coming from a place where I am not college educated, and every all education that I have is my own. I've had I had to seek it out. I was public. I was educated in public school in North Carolina, and I barely graduated high school. Um, and so when I get up on a panel like this and I speak articulately, ar articulately, that's I ironic. Um, <laughs> There's an assumption that I'm coming from a place where I'm, I'm college educated and I have this wealth of, of knowledge that has been imparted to me by caring generations beforehand. And I was, that's not my story. Um, and I think it's important to, for, for me, as a creator of content for other people, to um, try to affor affirm that kind of, that kind of story and, or, or other stories where, where you're maybe not playing into the expectations. When we, so often when we talk about feminism or talk about queer community, we're talking about white, college-educated, able-bodied people um, living in a city or metropolitan area and you know, people who wear certain clothes and have the same haircuts and things like that. You know, it's, very, it's very limited and so, um, and I'm, you know, I'm exceptional in the, from that narrative. Um, as a, as a poor person and as a non-college educated person. I'm not exceptional from that narrative as a white person. And it's important for me as, a, as an author to remember that and remember those things. And so I think my role as a, as, a, as a writer is to create the best content that I can and hope that there's some affirmation in it. I, I try to create affirmative content um, and generally prefer to make things humorous and kind of keep, keep things light. Um, because that's what that's where I saw that's where I saw a lack. But I have a lot of blind spots because of, of privileges that I that are inherent to who I am, and privileges that you know kind of in, when when we talk about intersectionality, I it's you know the way that being poor and white can intersect sometimes is that you don't know what, what ideas like intersectionality are, and you have to figure them out for yourself in this way that um, isn't fed to you the way that it's fed to college students, and so. Um, I don't know, do, do, doing the best you can is essentially my answer to that, is, is that's my role and that's what I hope to continue to do as, a, as an author. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm squirming a little bit. I'm kind of like, oh shit, yeah, like what am I doing that's like anti-racist or anti-oppression work in this writing? Um, and oh, <laughs> you look like I hurt your feelings. I think it's a really useful question to ask. Um, I, I mean, the story that I read earlier obviously like doesn't really have much to do with that except that it's kind of a critique of someone who's coming from relative privilege kind of realizing that having to go oh this bubble that I built is like actually kind of bullshit and it's, it's popping a little for her in this way um, but insofar as like working explicitly on the things that you're asking about yeah I don't know um, well I want to thank everyone read Donna, Imogen, Rika, um, and Barnard Library. And, and thank you for doing a great job. Thank you. Oh,